Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Johannesburg in our series on women in medicine is Dr. Jodie Pearl, who is a neurologist and runs a practice in Sunning Hill Hospital in Johannesburg. Throughout her 18 years of private practice, she's seen almost 20,000 patients. Welcome to the show, Dr. Pearl. Thank you, Emily, and thank you for this uh, great opportunity. I, uh, I've been reading some of the guests that you've had on the show, and I feel extremely honored and humbled by your invitation. It's our pleasure, and you are our first neurologist, so we look forward to hearing some of your lessons and, and learnings in the discussion today. To begin with, neurologists diagnose and treat disorders of the nervous system, whether that's the, the central nervous system, brain and spine, to the peripheral nervous system. Diseases that come to mind are the likes of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, having a back injury, or brain tumors and seizures. Can you please share some insight into the types of conditions that you treat and diagnose? I'm a general neurologist, and so I treat all those conditions that you've mentioned. Having said that, you know, the brain is one of the most complex organs in the body. And uh, we know that there's still so much to be learned when it comes to brain and central nervous system function. To this day, an example is we, we don't even know why it is that we have to sleep and why we dream. And uh, there are just so many billions of neurons firing all at once. The brain is, is, is a difficult organ. Some of the conditions that I see are rare and the general population may never have heard of them. Stiff person syndrome, for example, and, you know, some dementias, which are not your typical Alzheimer's dementia, Lewy body dementia, neurosarcoidosis. I think what's happened to me over time is because I, I'm very pedantic about getting to the bottom of, of things and trying to find answers, I've ended up getting patients that have been to several other doctors around the country and they end up at me and so I have all these very difficult patients. Sometimes I find the answer, sometimes not. But I think one of my greatest sort of attributes is that I enjoy information sharing and I'm only too happy to work with other neurologists and share information and insights in terms of coming to a diagnosis. It sounds as though you work within this sort of network of, of a puzzle, for, for want of a, of a better word, of, of trying to fit components together and identify the right types of solutions. And when you talk about this dynamic of collaboration, every year we're seeing more and more advancements in any types of field, but particularly so within the medical sphere. And I'd imagine that that also stimulates new opportunities or, or new treatments or new diagnoses and being able to improve health care of individuals. Absolutely. You know, I always say generally uh, South African doctors are extremely good diagnosticians because we see so much all the time from, from the day that we 
stepped foot into the hospitals to train as, as mere fourth-year students and ongoing. And because you see so much of, of everything, I think that our clinical acumen is excellent. What we lack possibly is that super, super specialization. For example, if I look at what happens overseas, Cleveland Clinic, for example, and, and there they would run a headache clinic and there would be five or so specialists all together assessing one case. Um, in one week, I can assess 30 headache patients all on my own. So I think that South African doctors have great exposure and great experience. Perhaps what we're lacking is very super specialized units. I would say that that also depends from an issue of, of capacity of the, the number of people that individuals see and the ratio of doctors per patients and specialists. One question I wanted to ask you whilst we're on this topic specifically around um, neurology and different types of, of ailments and disorders, are there any neurological conditions that seem to impact women more so than men? Most definitely. Um, there are several conditions which are more common in women. For example, headache disorders, migraine, which is a very debilitating disorder, often under-recognized and under-treated. Multiple sclerosis is another disorder more common in women. Young strokes, as we get older, the, you know, we know the general causes of, of stroke as in older populations being hypertension, diabetes, etc. But in the younger population, there is a female predominance, and that is based perhaps on other risks, uh, hormonal-based risks, oral contraceptive pregnancy, um, those type of, uh, of things which are obviously unique to women. And in fact, something even like Alzheimer's disease seems to be more common in, in women. The other one which comes to mind is autoimmune diseases that have neurological complications. So an autoimmune disease is a disorder where your own body attacks healthy cells. And those disorders tend to be more common in women and often have neurological manifestations as well as other organ systems. And besides hormonal changes, what do you attribute to be some of the triggers that prompt the, the onset of neurological conditions in women? So there's been a lot of work done. Let's take a condition like multiple sclerosis, which is not hormonally based in any way, unlike, for example, migraine, which we, which we know has a hormonal link. And there's been a lot of work to try and understand the, the um, biology and, uh, behind why it's a condition that is more prevalent in women. There were some publications recently that perhaps a woman's brain has a different protein at the interface between the blood and the brain, which we call the blood-brain barrier, almost a gatekeeper protein, which allows more permeability in the brain. You know, we don't even know what causes MS. We know it's autoimmune-based, um, but it's one of those conditions, there's no specific cause Another interesting fact talking about multiple sclerosis is that there were large differences in, in numbers of, of multiple sclerosis 
in different ethnic groups. Um, it's only now that the numbers, for example, in African and Hispanic um, patients is on the increase. So there must be some environmental trigger at play as well. Uh, historically, we didn't even believe that multiple sclerosis occurred in, in African patients, and that is no longer the case. But neuro neurological disorders are often difficult in that the brain is not an organ that can easily be biopsied. Uh, and it's very different from, for example, a skin disorder. In skin disorders, you, you can take a little biopsy and you get an answer because you get it sent off to a laboratory and a printout. With the brain, you know, you're looking at a, either a scan, which is showing structure, the electrical function, which is what we call an EEG, but we have no way of measuring brain chemistry, you know, and proteins, and it's, it's, it's difficult. Where you can biopsy tumors, for example, that's fine, but just to take a, a patient to biopsy brain matter is, is really difficult. You know, there, there are conditions which are common, and, and we, we learn in medicine from early on that common things occur commonly, which means that when patients present, you've got to look at, at the commonest conditions. You know, there are only a subset of patients which have these very rare and difficult neurological disorders. But medicine is ever-changing and evolving, and there are new disorders that are, are, are coming uh, to light you know, over time. I'll, I'll give you an example. There's something called functional neurological disorders. Now, that's a, a very uh, interesting disorder in that patients present with various neurological signs and symptoms, and no matter how hard you look, there is no underlying medical reason for it. So what we call no organic cause. And those disorders were initially thought to be part of the psychiatric spectrum. That's now changed, and these disorders have been moved to the neurological classification in the, in the worldwide classification of medical disorders. Hi, I'm Zonke Digana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter, and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today, we're talking to neurologist Dr. Jody Pearl in our series on women in medicine. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. You've seen over 20,000 patients to date. I mean, that is just a phenomenal number. And thinking about this dynamic, it's not just looking at aspects from patient perspective, but these people all have families. So that's 20,000 families that you have been taking care of their, their loved ones. And your patients span the breadth of the continent from Nigeria to Mozambique to Zimbabwe, Malawi, Ghana, Kenya. Please, can you share with us a couple of success stories which really stand out for you? One of the stories that comes to mind first is, is actually uh, years ago when I had recently started in private practice and I was actually uh, seven months pregnant with twins. I was called to a, a young stroke patient and I remember standing at the foot of his bed. He was in his, his late thirties, a very fit individual. And I remember standing at the edge of the bed and thinking, should I give him 
clot busters. We call them clot busters in medical terms. They're called thrombolytics. They're there to dissolve a clot to try and restore blood flow as early as possible. And it wasn't something that was in the South African neurological stroke guidelines at that time, but they, they were available because they were being used for, for heart attacks, you know, to dissolve the clot. And I, I obviously had been reading up, and as I do all the time, trying to keep up to date. And I was faced with this difficult decision. And, um, you know, he was accompanied by, by some uh, colleagues who said, you know, we know this man, he would want you to do everything you can because the stroke was so large that he probably wouldn't have walked or, or talked again. And he's now, all this time later, I mean, he's, he's extremely fit. He trains. You can maybe hear occasionally a little stutter, but he had absolute complete recovery. And I'll never forget him because it was one of my first sort of success stories, but it didn't come without question. And, you know, to an extent, I had to be brave in making that decision. Another story which comes to mind, which, which touches my heart greatly, is, is one of the cleaning uh, kitchen staff at the hospital. She came to me one day. Um, and she said to me, please, can I see her daughter who developed epilepsy at 11 years old? She was normal, a normal child up until then. And she, you know, she was fitting all the time and going every month to, to the clinic to get the same medication and really wasn't functional at all. She, in fact, was mentally impaired as a result of having all these seizures. And... Um, you know, the, the, this mom who w worked in the kitchen there had to have someone, other family members look after her. At that stage, she was, by the time I saw her, she was already in her 20s. And, you know, it took me about eight months to get the, the medicine cocktail right. And, you know, for the last, um, I think, nearly going on almost 10 years, she's been seizure-free. And in fact, one of, one of the greatest sort of moments I'll, I'll, I'll remember is when she walked into the office with her mom and she was working as a hostess now in one of the wards at Sunny Hill Hospital. The hostesses, you know, help with sort of giving out food and talking to patients and that. She was so proud of her, herself. It must be such a rewarding experience of, of the impact that you have on people's lives, that they're able to have a life of sorts, to have that life back. Now, you've recently returned from a visit to Nigeria, and one of the plans I understand underway is to be building up neurology capacity in the country by setting up a neurology center. Please tell us how this initiative came about. So this is um, very interesting. I actually, I'm a firm believer in, as the old adage goes, things happen for a reason. In 2018, I, I was on call at Sunny Hill Hospital and I was informed that there was a, a VIP coming in from Nigeria and no one could really give a time and he was being flown in. And uh, I waited patiently. It, you know, I wanted to get home to my family, but 
ended up staying there most of the night. And this particular patient had had a, a, a stroke a couple of weeks before being air evacuated to South Africa. And, you know, I went about my normal business in terms of looking after him as I do any other patient. I, I really didn't even know who he was at the time and subsequently learned that this man was a, a very um, well-known humanitarian and philanthropist in, in Nigeria. He is known as the Sama of the universe, according to the Nigerian folk. And what he's done is he's built schools and substations for electricity, and he has a hospital and a university with a medical school that he built in Akata City where, where he was born in, in poverty. And what struck me about this man was he was his gratitude and his determination to go back to absolutely normal full function at the age of 83 the stroke happened which he has done he has overcome and what struck me was that here is an extremely wealthy man who he has access to to practically anything um, and everyone but there he was in a in a hospital which he himself had built for the people and they weren't able to offer him the kind of care, basic stroke care, that, uh, that we were able to offer. It kind of plagued me to think that there is so much that can be done and it's not complicated medicine. It's just about having the right direction. And so I went to visit him at his behest. He wanted to present me with an award in Nigeria. And I visited this hospital and the medical school. And um, we have embarked on a journey that I will help to educate some of the specialists there and set up a unit that is functionally practical. So not so much academics, what people need is they need practical training in order to practice basic emergency medicine in the field of neurology. It's a fantastic initiative that you're doing and you have this ethos of almost paying things forward, of being able to, to give back, which I think is such a wonderful attribute to possess. Thank you. Hi, this is Lyra, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy. Today, we're talking to neurologist Dr. Jody Pearl in our series on women in medicine. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. We've spoken about the work that you do, and you've, you've highlighted some fantastic examples of, of different cases and the positive outcomes. Turning towards, let's say, 18 years plus ago, when you yes. were starting out, why did you pursue a, 
a career in medicine and what gave you a, a mind to channel your specialization into neurology? It's an interesting question. I think that one of the things, you know, when I was young, my late grandmother was misdiagnosed with a psychiatric illness when in fact she had young onset Alzheimer's disease. She presented with cognitive and and psychiatric symptoms in her 50s and ended up, I'll never forget as a child, going to visit her in institutions such as Tara, uh, which is a a unit here in in Johannesburg. It's a state-run unit, an excellent unit. But eventually it became blatantly obvious that she had young onset Alzheimer's disease. My mother had spent many years uh, of anguish, you know, as to no one being able to, to give them answers as to, to what was happening and why she, why she was so impaired. That, that is one of the things I think that, that comes to mind. The other thing is, is that I feel that medicine is a calling up. I always wanted to be a doctor. I, I don't think that I ever thought of doing anything else. And um, I was determined, having said that, there were some difficult choices I had to make. And I think that young people, especially young women, to have to make certain career choices at the tender age of 17 is, is not easy. I applied around the country and was accepted uh, at multiple universities. And then I had to decide where I was going to go. I I was really torn between leaving my family and going to UCT or Stellenbosch or Pretoria University or just staying and praying that I would get into WITS. And I must say, if it wasn't because of the commitment of my mother in pursuing the uh, response from WITS University, I may not have ended up in medicine. There's nothing like the power of a mother. I have heard so many stories of mums invested into their children to really make sure that they realize their dreams. Absolutely. I think that that is one of the key factors. I believe as women, whether it's as mothers or or aunts or, you know, or, or just women in general, one of the key factors in encouraging and, and helping the youth and the women uh, of the future to, to do great things and to be recognized and to excel is to teach them from a very young age that they are important, that if they have a voice, they will have a choice and that they should be acknowledged and they should be encouraged and they should be praised. You spoke about medicine being a calling um, and that, that was your you know, in in your mind and in your view, you couldn't be anything else other than a doctor. We know that in South Africa that we are underrepresented in terms of the ratio of doctors to citizens. There was a study done in 2013 which noted that in South Africa there were 60 doctors per 100,000 citizens, but the world average was 152 doctors per 100,000 citizens at the time. In this case, we're really not going to dwell into the myriad of reasons on why this is. But from your perspective, do you think enough is being done to encourage or help women to pursue a career in medicine? 
I don't think enough is being done. I think there is uh, this misconception that perhaps medicine is a male-dominated field and that it is more difficult for women to excel in, in medicine. And, you know, women have other responsibilities, perhaps, when it comes to family and home responsibilities that maybe men don't have. But I believe that if there were women like myself and, and like this show that were able to to show those out there that it's possible to have everything if you prepare to work for it. I'm a very firm believer in hard work and dedication. I don't believe that anything that that I have or that I've achieved has just come to me. I believe that I've worked very hard for it. And I do think that, you know, if, if a woman is prepared to work hard and has the right support structure, then going into medicine is, is a great career choice. Problem is it's quite difficult to get into medicine sometimes. And I think there are a lot of people who want to do medicine that just cannot get in. Staying for a moment of this notion of, of being able to have everything, if you put in the right amount of work, if you also have the enabling environment from a support structure and a network system, you're successful at the job that you'll do. You have three children and manage to keep everything running and, and together. What's your winning formula? So I think my winning formula is that I've, I've surrounded myself with people that help those structures run smoothly. It's a very nurturing environment. So both at home and at my office, all my staff have been with me since the beginning, which is now 18 years. And I don't run the practice or my home as if, you know, I'm the boss or I'm uh, the employer and those are employees. We, we run like a family. So every person who is in my life plays a very significant role. And I realized that I would not be where I am without the support of, of all of those people. I also have very supportive parents my mother and father have been extremely dedicated to me and my mother, in fact, was working in my practice for, for many years until she, she recently became ill. And I have great children. They're very independent. I have regrets where I feel that perhaps I missed too many soccer games or netball matches or award ceremonies. But on the other side, I see that my children have grown up into very independent, empathic, well-rounded individuals. And I have a partner who is, is also very supportive. I do think, though, I have very little reserve capacity. So if, if something else happens that is an extra stress on me, I do sometimes feel like I'm going to tumble. You know, I do hit a period where I feel... It's too much. It's just too much because I run it 100% all the time. How do you replenish yourself when your levels run down? I think that for me, work 
and my patience and doing good things for people is what feeds me my dopamine, which is our reward chemical. And I have a system where I perform random acts of kindness. So if I'm feeling a little bit run down or burnt out, I will endeavor to do something good for someone. And it may not be in the medical field, for example. And that makes me feel good. So some, you know, some people say they need to be away from work and take time off. And it's, it's helping people and, and, and speaking to my patients and hearing their stories and, you know, uh, seeing them go from struggling to being happy and successful, that helps me to replenish. I do sometimes take time out. And during that time, I, I feel that I should try and shut down a little bit. But I've, I've mastered a form of, I think it's meditation, uh, where I can just lie on a Saturday or a Sunday for an hour and think nothing. So I've, I've, I'm able to clear my brain completely that I can think about nothing for a couple of hours and that then replenishes me. My daughter's uh, highly intelligent. She's highly analytical. And she thinks, I said, you need to learn to turn off your brain. She said, I don't know how to do that. I said, it's a skill. I've learned it over many years. I can literally sit or lie with my eyes closed and think nothing. I, I'm not a warrior. I don't sit and worry. I don't, I just think nothing. But somehow, some, somewhere, the answers or clues just pop into my actions. So I think I am thinking, but I'm not conscious. conscious. Hi, my name is Yvonne Takataka, and I'm UNICEF and Rollback Malaria Goodwill Ambassador. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in the struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, a program against social ills such as racism, socio-economic class division and gender-based violence. Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amalia Balka every week on this day at this time. Today, we're talking to neurologist Dr. Jody Pearl in our series on women in medicine. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Thanks for sharing some of the aspects in, in the way that you look at being able to restore things from being able to replenish your energy levels in a case of being able to almost flip the mental switch off and take a time out. We're coming towards the end of the show now. And a question I wanted to ask is about your personal journey and some of the factors that you consider have contributed to your success. So I think that... I have evolved over years to, to realize that the most important thing for me is who I am as a person. It's not what I achieve on paper or what, what accolades I have. It's so that when I look in the mirror, I'm happy with who I see, that I know that I've given 100% of my best to my family, to my patients. I know that there are many mistakes that I have made and 
I have learned to be able to take criticism and I like to improve myself and I, and I feel that it hasn't been an easy journey. There have been many times in my life where I've had, uh, you know, obstacles or, or times when I've gone through difficulties, but I, I move forward and I, I really, I'd like to believe that we all have the capacity to, to try and move forward and, um, and believe that, you know, if we make the right choices and we listen to that little voice in your head or, or, or look for some spiritual guidance that the answers are out there and we can find them. Who would you say have been some of the key female role models or influences in your life? So I think that uh, in terms of my, my neurological practice, Professor Vivian Fritz was a great inspiration to me. Um, she was the head of neurology previously. She's retired. She's a wonderful woman. And she, you know, I, I did neurology very quickly. Um, sounds strange, but I, I wrote my exams very close together and I, um, I managed to finish at a very young age. And I think that she was key in all of that. She uh, supported me. And I think that she saw something in me that, that led me to where I am today. I'd like to think that all of the people who looked after me through my years, from the time I was young, and, and, and obviously my mother and our, our helper even at that stage, I think that you know all the women who play small roles, in fact, are probably my greatest inspiration. I, I don't even have this great role model. Um, I think that sometimes we miss this people who are maybe not doctors and, and lawyers and government officials. The people who are just there that surround us and make our lives possible uh, and pleasant every day. Those are the people that I feel are my role models. I mean, when I get to work in the morning, I'm happy to see the lady from the cleaning service who's cleaning my office, and she's happy to see me. And I think that, you know, the biggest key factor is to recognize that there's so many beautiful people around us, and they don't necessarily have to be what we consider to be highly accomplished, famous role models. I'm getting a mental image of, um, you know, there's often on, on some presentations, they'll kind of like have a, a life analogy where they'll put in rocks, which represent key milestones, and then they'll put in sand and, and, and slowly the, the substrate gets smaller and smaller. And then they'll either pour in a bottle of water or, or a beer. And it's like, it's, it's the glue. It's, it's the sum of the parts, which in the way that you're talking about some of the ladies that have been part of your life and still are today, that they're what makes life. Absolutely. Absolutely. For me, those are the people who allow me to do what I do best and that's to treat patients. I, I, I honestly believe that. And, and that's, that's how, how I feel. You know, I feel that everyone is important 
and I try and, and show that in, in some small way or another. You know, I don't see that I am better or, or, or more superior to, to someone who serves the tea at my office because we are a, a, a unit and that unit is there to provide the best health care possible to as many people as possible. And on that wonderful note, as we close out today's discussion in honor of Mandela Day, please, can you share a few words of wisdom or inspiration that you'd like to pass on to girls and women in Africa that are listening to the show? I'd just like to say that I think that self-belief is one of the key factors. I think that if you believe in, your, in yourself and you prepare to work hard, that there are many opportunities in life, even though we don't always see them. And I think that the greatest thing we can give to the youth and our children is the support to, to follow their dreams. And whatever that may be, whether we, whether we believe that it's in their best interest or not, to do something that will fulfill them so that when they look back at their lives, they feel that I have had a good life, that I have done something good. Thanks for that wonderful message of inspiration. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you. And thank you for having me. And uh, it's an incredible show. And I, I, I wish you great luck going forward. And uh, I think that uh, you have done a great thing. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. And really, you've hit your 20,000 milestone. Let's look forward to the next 20,000 patients and, and the next 18 years. Please, God. Please, God. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. And it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I wish all of my fellow South Africans and Africans um, all the best during this difficult time and during the COVID crisis and just to know that the doctors are out there, we, we want to help. And, uh, and I think to my colleagues who are on the front, front line, uh, a special blessing to all of them. Thanks for that important message. Yes, stay safe. You have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to neurologist Dr. Jodie Pearl in our series on women in medicine. 